This is the Powered Up Podcast, show 17. Teach those teachable moments, make that incremental change with every child, and our target might not be necessarily proficiency, but is wholeheartedly student growth. If we see that child moving forward, that is all we can ask for. Welcome to a real-world education with insight and advice from teachers in the game, where current and former educators reveal what truly sets apart the great teachers and what it takes to make a positive impact on students. Whether you're in pre-service learning, new to the game, or a seasoned veteran, this is the show for you. You'll leave feeling inspired to take action because we are powering education by empowering you. everyone this is ken herman host of the powered up podcast and i am here with my co-host mr matt the eight species of swan rogers yeah pretty wild (laughs) eight species so i went to school at millersville and we had two swans and i know that they mate for life and they were not the most friendly birds but eight different species of swans and millersville takes pride in those swans and now Absolutely. you'll find out as you're if you're wondering what on earth are we talking about, you'll find out when we we jump into our interview with Zach Lowe. He highlights the town he's from and he talks about eight species of swan. So Millersville University, I think it's time you might have to uh, take a backseat on on that swan discussion. Um, so well, we had before, a great interview. Before you go any further, do you know what they're named? I do not. Well, one is named Miller. The other one is named Seville. <laughs> wow, that is that is more creative than my nicknames for you. <laughs> oh, come on. Uh, all, right. all right, so anyway, um, we had a great interview with Zach tonight, and a theme that we've heard a lot, Matt, from all of our guests, it constantly circles back to there's the topics of great instruction. We hear great instructional ideas throughout the interviews, especially in the lesson lens. But those most important things that you can do for students really boils down to making students feel loved, making sure that they know you're present, all, all of those those key things about uh, the students specifically. And, and actually, this past week, I ran into one of my former fifth grade students who was not even in my homeroom, but came to me for, for math every day. And he is, he's a sophomore now. He recognized me, didn't realize that I was working as a, a coach at the high school. Um, and, you know, he, we, we had some small talk and he, uh, at one point just blurted out and said, Mr. Ermit, I want you to know you're by far the most impactful teacher I've ever had in school. And, you know, one those moments are like the greatest thing that a teacher can ever hear. Um, they always seem to happen on the days when you need it most. Like the, the, it almost is like the students know. But, you know, when I think back to having him in class, I, I remember vivid experiences with him and math wasn't his favorite subject. It, he struggled in it, but he also told me that he always looks forward to it every day. Um, but it, it made me realize and, and remember that we can impact students far beyond what we realize. You know, I don't know that I would have thought of 
him as a student that connected with me that much as as much as he said he did and so it's it's that powerful reminder that as educators and you shared this with our interview on show 15 with ryan that not only that opportunity he has with that special class but that responsibility that he has um it's it's just powerful in, in what we're hearing with our guests and i think it's consistent that's the beautiful thing like i think uh and ken you and i've talked about it a little bit but I, when people say like no substantial learning can happen without relationships it's not just talk it is people that have developed relationships recognizing how much maybe not easier the job is but how much more focused the learning is and how much more directed the school experiences for both ends I, when I have a really good relationship and I've had times where I know to prioritize relationship and I've struggled to match a group that it's not a lack of effort, but there's definitely elements of, of having to revisit and adjust things. What used to work doesn't work, but the idea of establishing a relationship, I, I like to that concept and I test it every once in a while by riling up my class and just simply putting my hand up or like lowering my hand and the kids respond. And that's a really nice pulse of like, are the kids in tune to be respectful and appreciating the respect between us? Is the relationship shared and say, hey, right now we went from silly fun time into, hey, we have to get down to business. I think that control and I can I can ruin it again and and know that they're going to come back and say, hey, when, when it comes down to business, I've said this before, my ultimate goal and I'm I've been super pleased with this. We're in the middle of state testing right now and my kids are running through boredom and exhaustion walls because I said the only thing I'm going to ask you at the end of the day is did you try your best? That's it. And if you can honestly say you did, then you are. And I've had a kid take, honestly, all the kids have been so dedicated. I've had a kid that has not been focused to the level, and I've been constantly meeting with her to try and pull her up. She tested and took her time and used all the strategies, not even in my room. She was a pullout student. That's the type of connection that when you sit there and you say, you know, do I care about the results? No, I, I don't genuinely, but I care that my kids really valued our relationship and valued our, our experience. And I, and I think in, in the lesson lens, and, and you mentioned it here, but our guest tonight talks about love of what you're doing, appreciation of what you're doing, but loving for kids and, and knowing the best interests. And I find that to be a true sign of recognizing what you're doing in education. It is tough to be an educator, but he, Zach, is a true embodiment of what I'm doing and all the effort I put in is all worth it. Um, and I think that'll come out in the interview today. Absolutely. And for newer teachers, as Matt said, it is something that you absolutely have to dedicate yourself to it's a craft. It takes time. It takes, you know, it's something that you can improve in. 
in developing those relationships, finding ways to naturally do it through the flow of a lesson, uh, the way you start your day, the way you end your day for our experienced teachers that are utilizing it. You know, this is one, a reminder that it is important and it is valuable. Um, but, you know, don't ever lose focus of it because it's so easy with all of the responsibilities that keep, you know, getting piled on teachers to lose sight of it or to be distracted from it. Um, and there's big opportunities. There's small opportunities to do it. And, um, and Zach talks about also how it's done as a building and as a community in his school, which I thought was, was really powerful, powerful to hear. So um, without any other further delay, let's jump into that interview with Zach Lowe. Hi, Zach. Welcome to the Powered Up Podcast. How are you doing today? Good. How about you all? We're doing very well. So why don't you uh, just start things off by introducing yourself, uh, where you're from, what you teach, and kind of just what your your teaching journey has looked like kind of as a overall snapshot. Yeah, absolutely. And, and thank you all for having me, too. I greatly appreciate the, the opportunity to, to talk with you over the next uh, next hour or so. Of course. Um, but uh, no, my name's Zach Lowe. Um, currently reside in a small little town that no one's ever heard of, uh, Sumter, South Carolina. Um, our claim to fame is we have a uh, park called Swan Lake, which is the only park in the world that has all eight species of swan. So that's one thing that you would just have in the middle of a cornfield in South Carolina, but we have it. <laughs> um, originally, actually, from uh, the Youngstown, Ohio area. So I talk a little bit faster, I walk a little bit faster than a lot of my colleagues. Um, but, you know, and drive a little bit faster too, I'm sure. Um, but graduated from college up in Ohio and, uh, of course there weren't that many jobs available in Ohio unless you wanted to substitute teach first. Uh, everyone seemed to, to stay in their positions for quite some time. Um, so I was sick of the snow, uh, and I'm also a sucker for good barbecue. So ended up, uh, getting in touch with, uh, Sumter School District where I, I work at now, uh, through a job fair and, uh, came down down south and started my teaching career. Ironically enough, um, I spent the first six years of my career teaching uh, eighth grade social studies, uh, which is South Carolina history. So I actually had a, a whole lot to learn uh, that, that preceding summer before my first year teaching, not only the, you know, the first year teaching aspect, but then the content stuff as well. Um, and you know, over the years, I've, I've spent time as a department chair, uh, grade level leader, um, I actually helped to rewrite the state standards for social studies uh, just a few years ago, named uh, Campus Teacher of the Year, School District Teacher of the Year, and then the one accolade that I always like to, to share is I was a top five finalist for State Teacher of the Year. So uh, the State Superintendent of Education walked in my classroom with a giant $10,000 check, and I, I didn't, uh, I've never seen my students that excited to, to see a visitor in my life, but they, they thought that uh, I was going to split that cash, but you know, <laughs> after Uncle Sam takes his half, then there's not much left. Um, but uh, no, this year, you know, I, I kind of picked a, a worse year, I suppose, to transition into a new role uh, with our, our whole hybrid and virtual instruction. But I'm now currently serving as a curriculum coach, uh, trying to, to help and assist my colleagues and coach them through uh, this, this uh, bit of confusion that we've had this year. Uh, but we're making it through. But uh, currently serve uh, teachers in grades pre-K through eighth grade as the curriculum coach. So again, this year kind of stretching my boundaries from my 
uh, secondary kind of perspective down to actually the, the lower grades too. But that, that's kind of my professional uh, excursions in a nutshell. So what's, what's really interesting is I too was a state teacher of the year finalist. However, I clearly have chosen the wrong state to teach in because I did not get a check for those <laughs> accolades. Um, I was a former elementary teacher and I am now in my first year as a secondary instructional coach. So you and I have kind of uh, crossed paths in the in the opposite way. So I definitely want to um, tackle tackle some of that in terms of the, of the coaching tonight uh, throughout our conversation. So when you first moved to South Carolina, you shared about how the social studies content was essentially new history that you had, you had never heard. And a couple of our guests in the past have talked about when they started their career, um, understanding the culture, understanding the, the families and the community that they were teaching in was a huge part of their success. So can you kind of talk about how I'm sure learning that new content that you had to teach as well as trying to understand the community that you were moving to was, was a challenge and, and how that kind of fit into you growing as an educator in your classroom? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you, you know, I'd say that I guess I'm a firm believer, you know, first off, all children can learn. They all have that capacity to learn, right? All families are supportive of their children. It might just manifest itself in different ways. Um, and all educators are really uh, engaged in the same work, no matter where you're at, no matter what school you're at. So I think that that kind of, that perspective might have buffered me a little bit from some of those, you know, those nuances that you're like, oh, well, because I got questions from my family all the time, like, how's it like teaching in, you know, in a place, you know, that isn't, you know, the, the same social economic status of where you grew up at, um, the same racial diversity where you grew up at, same religious diversity where you grew up at. Um, but I will say in my undergrad preparation, they were really intentional about exposing us to different types of schools, right? So we did uh, field work in rural schools, inner city schools, suburban schools. So utilizing those experiences kind of aided me in, in that transition process. But what's interesting to note, and, and uh, we mentioned this a little bit before the program started, just in conversation, but my school, um, very, very small. <laughs> because of that, it's a you know, tight-knit family from, from the jump, right? So the first school I taught at before um, our elementary school and middle school came together was just the middle school side. And it was sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. We had about 125 students total. So you had two teachers per content area. You had a guidance counselor, of course, your related arts teachers, and then your support staff, and one principal. So very quickly, you realize that, you know, you need to leverage relationships with people, with your colleagues, uh, with the local community. And it, the, the one thing I'll say too about our school, we are a Title I school, poverty rate right around 97%. So very, very impoverished uh, area of the community. But our parents are always present, our families are always present, grandparents, aunts, uncles, um, they always answer the call, which is, is fantastic, right? There, there might not be some of the other resources that other, other school communities have, other districts might have, but from, from the get-go, if I called home and shared a concern or an accolade, there was always someone on that other end who is just as generally interested in the success of that child. So I wouldn't say necessarily it was like a huge kind of shift, 
Uh, of course, there are you know a couple different nuances about like the language, the jargon that that folks use, um, some of the perspectives that folks take. You know what's important to them in the grand scheme of education. But at the at the heart of heart, education is is good teaching, good relationships, and I've been blessed from 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 my move down south um, with folks who have who have taken care of me, right? Um, you know, it takes a village to raise a child, and one thing I always say too is it takes a village to raise a teacher. So from my content area colleagues to, um, you know, uh, there's a few teachers that come straight to my mind, right? Um, you know, for instance, whenever you're a first-year teacher, of course, you're assigned your mentor. And sometimes your mentor, you know, does a, a wonderful job, right? And that's the person you connect with, and that's the person that, that um, you're, you're going to go through each day with. But for me, I had my mentor. I also had both of my teachers next door to my classroom, highly experienced teachers, one of which was actually from Ohio, so we kind of bonded over that as well. Um, so all these different factors kind of came together, and I felt wholly supported the entire time since I've, since I've come down here. So you mentioned teaching in a Title I school, and I, I teach in a Title I school as well up in Pennsylvania, fairly small as well. Um, before jumping into the question, can you kind of clarify what that means and honestly the special opportunities that um, come with being a Title I school? Yeah, so for um, you know, Title I classification, um, and, and I know they revised regulations just a few years ago, but it's based on um, the local community, um, what the, the cost of standard of living is, and also what the average income is. Um, and I believe that that's kind of like a regional-based figure. And then from there, the actual school families, um, it is then calculated how many are eligible for government uh, benefits. And that's kind of what indicates your, your poverty level for your school. And as I mentioned, you know, we're, in, we're in the upper 90s for our school, so the vast majority of our families are eligible for government subsidies, whether you know, that's welfare, Medicaid, so on and so forth. Uh, but with that, of course, you know, you had mentioned the extra opportunities that, that comes with it. There's also a lot of extra regulations. And that's actually one of my roles this year is um, kind of the, the budget czar, I guess you could say. <laughs> so overseeing all the extra dollars that come with being a Title I school that we receive from the federal government. Um, and those expenses, um, you know, I, I can't tell you everything that, that we spend that money on, but the big ticket items which really enables us to do a lot of a lot of good stuff for our students. Uh, we're able to hire a parent facilitator who helps to schedule all of our parent-teacher conferences for us, who will actually drive out to homes to, to deliver schoolwork for our families, and that's been <laughs> very critical uh, in, in terms of the, the pandemic learning. Uh, and then we're also able to hire um, typically one other staff member, whether that's a reading interventionist or a math interventionist or so on and so forth. In fact, I think that my paycheck actually comes from Title I too. So I'm thankful for, for those dollars, those opportunities. But within that program, there are some particular um, you know, regulations of things that we really have to be mindful of teaching in the context that we're teaching in about some of the different resources we should offer the local community. So another one of my roles as the coach is to plan um, parent workshops or family workshops, right? So um, helping to work our, walk our families through how to use a Chromebook because we're a Google school district or, you know, how to communicate effectively with their child 
or you know, multitude of other different things. State testing, we have to offer a workshop on that as well. So all of these different kinds of components, well, sometimes you, know, you, you get that Title I packet laid on your desk and it seems awfully cumbersome, all the different things you have to do, but it's all so very intentional and there's that flexibility that we can then fill in those gaps that we see as needed. For instance, this year we offered, I think, four different family workshops on virtual learning. So, you know, one was bare bones, you know, how do you turn the Chromebook on? How do you update the Chromebook and how do you turn it off? Uh, because a lot of our, our children are raised by grandparents who may have very well never used a laptop or definitely, you know, this Chrome operating system all the way up to, you know, how do you sync your Google Calendar onto your iPhone? So, again, being that small community, we're able to, to definitely know exactly what our families need and then use those Title I resources to, to do our best job to kind of meet that need. That's a great explanation because I think that's one of those things that I, I've taught in the same school district that has always, since the time I started there, has always been Title I, and I just assumed that that is just how all schools run. And, and from our end, um, I know we, we spend a lot of our, our budget towards uh, additional supports and um, mostly through, honestly, human beings to provide smaller opportunities for instruction. Um, but there's also, as you mentioned, other regulations, the idea of, hey, um, each of these events are parent and community development based events that, as you were mentioning, which is incredible, develops the sense of the school being a center or a hub for the families. Um, so much more than just the place where kids show up uh, to do their learning. So um, with that kind of being the case, so the poverty level is incredibly high, but your interactivity with family members obviously ha is astonishing. And I will say that I'm, I'm thrilled with what our families and their interaction, but I, I can't say that I believe it's as frequent as yours is. Is there anything specific, whether it's from administrations and whether it's from being a Title I school or even your development and fellow colleagues that got uh, that developed your community to be so um, on board with the practices of of your school? Well, you know, I think it's being forthright with what our goals are, right? And and I alluded to a little bit earlier, um, but our our school district has been. A little bit of a state of upheaval uh, over the last you know seven eight years there's been some budgetary issues we've had declining enrollment because we are a relatively rural district and of course urbanization is continuing to progress through the united states uh, today um, so it came to the point that the school district had to end up closing three low enrollment schools and the former middle school that i worked at was one of those ones that was closed now, playing devil's advocate for that, our middle school was about a mile down the street from our feeder elementary school. So that's why we are now, you know, pre-K through eighth grade in one school. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but with that, having the one school, um, we're able to build relationships with our families for 10 consecutive years from pre-K through eighth grade. And while we're only in the, I think, third year of this process, that's already started to manifest itself in, in just that, you know, myself as an eighth grade teacher last year, I'm able to see our kindergartners in the hallway and they know my name, I know their name, 
right? I know that they're interested maybe in social studies, and I just think, well, if I'm if I'm still in that eighth grade teaching role in you know seven eight years, I'm not that good at math, so I'm trying to calculate <laughs> my head. But if I'm still in that role, I've already made this relationship with the with the student, right? And from there, you can springboard uh, onto uh, families. But <clears throat> the one thing that is interesting is on our state survey data, we are 100% across the board, our families and our community members are in support of the school. And again, I think that that's being forthright with what we're trying to do. Uh, we always try and do different uh, planning meetings with our families. And one thing that's unique about South Carolina, <clears throat> beyond your traditional PTO per se, or beyond your Title I workshops or what have you, there's a state mandated law that um, requires every school to have an SIC, which is a School Improvement Council, which serves a legislatively mandated role that it is for the planning of the school, uh, the services that would be offered. So typically how that looks like is the who, uh, whichever family members or community members are on that SIC are the ones in charge of writing the school renewal plan for accreditation, right? So from the get-go, our families are engaged in exactly what is our school going to look like, what's our mission, what's our, what's our vision, what's our staffing going to be, what programs are we going to offer. So I think that that solid foundation really helps to build off of that. But then other than that, it's just being open, right? Our principle is phenomenal in terms of, <laughs> we always joke, it's almost like she has an eidetic memory of every single name of any person she's come across, right? So she she remembers how student X is related to student Y because their second or third cousin is married to another cousin, right? Just the amount of detail that she is able to, to um, work through and to remember about how our families are all related. Again, very small school, very family atmosphere type school, and everyone lives in the same area of the county. A lot of our students are related or they're friends with each other. So leveraging those connections of, okay, well, this child is struggling, but I know that this child's cousin is a recent graduate of a university and they might be able to tutor this child. So it's knowing those specific relationships. It's knowing about the specific needs of the child and the specific opportunities that exist in every family. That's really, that's really powerful. And and what you said about that small school and when you were an eighth grade teacher, you know, knowing those kindergartners, I, I know, Matt, you've talked before about, you know, jumping in and doing a lesson with a first grade class or a kindergarten class. And, you know, I was doing the same thing when I was teaching fifth grade. I was really in the STEM and sometimes I would co-teach with uh, another grade level or even even my grade partners. Um, but I think it's really important for teachers to to, you know, the, the culture and the identity of the, of the building is bigger than just an individual teacher, but individual teachers taking those initiatives to build those relationships. Actually, ironically, today, I was Zooming um, with a, a fourth grade class at the elementary school I've been out of for two years now. I was there for, eight, it was the first eight years in uh, my district. And I was just, I was showing them some technology tips and tricks and stuff. And, and at the end of the Zoom, you know, the teacher said, okay, Mr. Irm's going to take off now. And I, I was saying, you know, goodbye to all the kids. And, and this one girl chimes in and she says, hey, Mr. Irm, can I ask you a question before you go? So when I left this school, 
this student was in second grade. I taught fifth grade. And she says, did you used to assign homework to your class when you taught fifth grade? <laughs> and my response was, well, why are you asking that? <laughs> but, uh, you know, the conversation <laughs> continued and she was talking about how kids talked about it. But those students knew me because I was very open with teachers, working with teachers. And when you can build that in a school and kids are excited about a teacher they're going to have in the future or when a younger grade level teacher comes up to do something with an old grade, older grade level and they're excited to see their former teachers, that just builds such a powerful culture in the building um, that can really serve with the, the systems and programs that are in there. Um, do you have anything specific that, that you did as a classroom teacher that you feel really um, kind of served to that idea of building a, a larger culture in the building? Yeah, in fact, you had mentioned, you know, the uh, either going down or going up in grade level, right, and being engaged with another class. <coughs> Excuse me. It's allergy season in South Carolina. <laughs> but, um, no, so we actually we instituted a program called Early Bird Buddies, um, where it was a, a program, because I was also student council advisor, where we would take our middle school student council students in 6th, 7th, and 8th grade, and they would actually tutor are um, most at risk first and second graders in ELA and mathematics in the morning time. Because uh, all of our students, of course, they're, you know, they're served breakfast free of charge. So all of our students are there. We have about a half an hour for breakfast time. Like this is perfect opportunity for our students not only to build relationships, but um, a lot of those students on that student council were also in uh, another class. And this is going way too far on the weeds. <laughs> but there's a class called Pro Team, which is a middle school course that is designed to train middle schoolers to become future teachers. So it's like, okay, they're in that line of work already. They have that interest already. Let's try and leverage that. <clears throat> but actually within the classroom, one thing that we started several years ago at our school was something very simple, right? And I'm surprised that we hadn't thought of it earlier, but a concept called positive postcards, where each week, every single teacher sends two positive postcards home with a simple message for a student of their selection of student, you know, Johnny did a phenomenal job in my class because blank. And building that community where, you know, anytime that you would see the students take selfies sometimes, right, or anytime that there were home visits conducted, that postcard was right up there on the fridge and it had the school's contact information on it. So in case the family needed to get in touch with anybody, it had the teacher's contact information on it as well. And just really a token of, you know, anytime that teachers call, it seems like there's that bad rap, like, oh gosh, what did my child do again, right? Or what did my child do now? But the fact of getting that in the mail, actually something tangible that you can't forget about because it's right there in front of you, something you can hold. Um, that is, you know, a phenomenal, just small little piece and very cost efficient too for any school. But short of that, <coughs> excuse me, I also made sure to um, contact every child's family at least twice per quarter. Um, at least one of those contacts would be positive in nature. There would be nothing I would say that would be constructive criticism, nothing I would say other than that. Just let's lay the groundwork. Let's make a positive relationship that we can then leverage later on in case there are any concerns. 
Um, but short of that too, and this is you know venturing out in little academics a bit, I'm, I'm a huge proponent of in the social studies because social studies doesn't always get you know the most resources, the most attention is you know the STEM fields maybe or ELA or math. But for social studies, there are so many different contests that students can participate in, whether it's you know making a documentary, writing an essay, writing a letter, so on and so forth. And having the opportunity for those families to see their kids excel on a regional or state level or national stage, that kind of really sends it home that what we're doing is at the highest level, that what your child is doing is at the highest level, building support within what we are doing in our school. I think when it comes down to it, you, you mentioned, Ken, Ken has mentioned something similar with like parent communication and, and those positive reinforcements and all of those, like the connections between are just so powerful and, and to, to recognize this teamwork. I, I know Ken calls and actually I started stealing this idea since we started this podcast and, and probably beforehand when, because Ken and I have known each other for years, but making that like it fluid the conversation between families. So um, one thing, not to, to steal Ken's point, but he said that um, ways that he would get in contact with parents, they wouldn't have to ever worry if it was through a Facebook group or a phone call for the most part was positive. Hey, this is me showing off what's going on. I'm going to make direct specific contact if we have to address something as a team. But again, that whole concept of I, I I don't know if I love, but I can respect the memes that are coming out about how like in the 70s, it was like my teacher said this and now the child's getting punished compared to the parents defending um, that it just seems like, Zach, you're, you guys are actively working on reestablishing that it's not one side like that 70s version is not acceptable either right like hey it's a round table of all of us working together and I, I think what you brought up about your principal and how your principal can pull connections like i am i will say i'm grateful i'm not a principal let me say that but there's a huge portion of that <laughs> that honestly is part educator to be a teacher trainer part disciplinarian for obvious reasons but honestly, a huge part social worker, because that person is the the cornerstone. And I'm, I'm grateful in the building that I work in that my principal lives in the district that we teach in. So she recognizes what the community is going through, recognizes the family dynamic. That is a huge advantage, although you may never be able to step away um, from school. But um, just kudos to like the environment that you're in. It, it seems like um, when it comes down to, hey, work worth doing, which we talk about frequently, that you're in a place that not only do you feel as a, a highly qualified, wonderful educator, um, you bring that, but you bring it to a community that really needs you to bring it every day too, um, especially for a subject area that is not prioritized as well. Um, that your love of learning can honestly stem a, a lifelong career that you unlock a, a ton of doors. Uh, I guess the what I would love to kind of hear about is there's obviously been success stories, but your role is to really 
understand what's going on in your community. Uh, I love the concept of you learning South Carolina history to be able to teach South, South Carolina history. But can you speak to the experience and, and maybe the challenges of, of that specific position? I know you're in curriculum a little bit broader now, but um, can you speak to that and, and, and or maybe successes with students specifically? Yeah, so in terms of the the content itself, right, it, it reads a lot like a U.S. history survey course with, you know, South Carolina maybe sprinkled on top. So a lot of the, the dates, the names, the events, things like that um, are maybe foreign to the traditional U.S. history teacher. And ironically enough, again, a lot of irony in, in my job I had, U.S. history was my least favorite of all the histories I studied in college with my history degree. Like I would much rather teach maybe modern Indian history than I would, you know, U.S. history. But anyway, <laughs> um, That's funny. So, so with that, you know, it, it's and maybe this is, you know, back to, to Ken's question about the the um, difference in culture, right, moving down south, that maybe this is the biggest difference, right, is in South Carolina history, of course, we're going to talk about the Civil War because our state arguably, arguably started it, right? But it's, you know, what perspective do you take? Who fired on who? Whose responsibility was it? Was slavery a cause of the Civil War? That's still, by and large, an unanswered question across a lot of different corners of our state. And while I didn't really experience any kind of flack on that back as myself in my own classroom, I do know that those conversations occurred in my work as uh, helping to rewrite the state social studies standards, right? About, well, <clears throat> we were trying to make the standards more reflective of diversity that currently exists in our state. And there's a lot of kind of anti-movement against that, saying that it should be the one specific kind of narrative of history, right? Um, so with that being said, again, knowing my school culture, we were perfectly okay having those um, what could be perceived as kind of difficult conversations in, in the classroom, right? Um, by and large, I would say that vast majority of our students, their families share kind of the same worldview um, of different events that are occurring in today's news, for example, or you know previous week's news, previous year's news, that that's really not too much of a, of a necessary issue. Yeah, so, so back to that, you know, uh, in the actual social studies classroom, um, the, a lot of successes that come out is, you know, and our standards were so very content heavy with saying that you have to teach this person, this event, this way, but there's still that degree of flexibility where, you know, a standard might ask you to identify. Well, we're going to go beyond identifying. We're actually going to try and explain something. So that really allows for the students' viewpoints to come out, right, through the analysis of evidence, through the viewing of uh, different opinions, through just discourse in the classroom, right? So we actually, um, we routinely had our students compete, I mentioned, in, in different contests, right, um, where they could write different uh, essays. For instance, uh, there was one essay about um, what makes America great that was sponsored by the VFW and you know just for the sake of it I said well that's a perfect opportunity for one of my elective classes um, that we might not have to stick on a regimented schedule 
and uh, one of our students actually won uh, the regional contest. So, of course, they had a big to-do, inviting the family, this, that, and the other, really makes her feel special. And she was not what you would say is a, a lover of history. She was definitely more on that science end. Uh, but, you know, in the actual classroom, there's also opportunities like that. There is one essay contest by, sponsored by the Daughters of the American Revolution <clears throat> about the Stamp Act. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. I know I have to teach about the Stamp Act. And this was actually my second year teaching when I was still getting my feet wet with the content. <clears throat> but I think that the student ended up winning a $500 cash prize just for writing an essay that I was going to ask him to write anyway. Uh, right? So I, I think that the, those little bite-sized you know, successes, um, which mean a lot to the students, but they then kind of trickle out to everybody else. And it's like, well, if he was able to do that, I know that I can too, right? So bringing kind of that, that success, that attention to our school community that is, you know, as we mentioned, uh, has challenges, is uh, generally underserved, uh, underprivileged, but they are just as capable as any other child across the state. Um, and, and I will also say, too, something that was really, really neat, uh, it wasn't a contest per se, but again, back to that, that connection, right, of what is happening in, in the real world. We talk about the civil rights movement in our course, and uh, during last school year, um, back in the fall before the um, presidential election, uh, we actually had our students think through, well, what are some civil rights challenges that exist today, right, for different diversity groups? And you know, civil rights extending to um, you know, uh, the, the right to have an abortion, right, or um, minimum wage, you know, as kind of like an actual kind of civil issue. And they all were able to self-select, write different prompts on it. And then what was neat is we also had them write letters to the actual candidates. And we got responses back from four or five of the different presidential candidates, um, which they were, they were just ecstatic about. They're like, I can't believe Elizabeth Warren wrote back to me, me of all people. So bringing that history, whatever it is, whatever I'm trying to learn about it, bringing that back and, and making it manageable for the students to see that relevancy, to see that connection to what they've either experienced or what I know that they're probably going to experience coming from Sumter County, South Carolina. That's great. I think it's, I think it's one of my favorite parts with social studies and history specifically is, is thinking about the context of what you're learning. Um, and I, when I was teaching with my students, I would always try to remind them we're reading you know, events, stories, things that happen to people. And these people are just like you and me. They just lived in a different time period. They lived in different situations. They had different opportunities. They had different social pressures. And so, you know, we can't necessarily judge them on what they did then, but we can look at the diversity and the, you know, the challenges that they were looking at at those times and, and try to relate you know, are we still facing those challenges today? Or, you know, what on a kind of a different topic, but like looking at leaders, you know, what qualities do these leaders have, you know, from the 1400s, the 1600s, the 1800s? Uh, one activity that I actually recommend to recommended to another teacher is, you know, when you're analyzing these, uh, these leaders, have the students try to identify what company they would be a CEO of today. Because leaders at that point are, are leaders for a reason, and they would probably be leaders today. And so just a way for them to kind of try to analyze 
what qualities do these people have, what strengths, what weaknesses, and really just try to get them to, to think at a higher level for that. I love how you brought in the actual real world experience. And that's, that's amazing that they, they got those responses back um, from the candidates. So those ideas that you're sharing and, and some of those, you know, snapshots of what your classroom looked like now as a, as a coach in supporting kindergarten through, through eighth grade teachers, you know, what would you say are some of the things that you're passionately sharing with teachers um, and, and what has been something that you've perhaps struggled with in, in supporting teachers this year? And I'm going to challenge you to give us something outside of technology, because that is the obvious answer in the world of pandemic teaching. Well, so, so actually, I'll flip that then. So um, I won't say technology is, is the challenge. I'll say that technology has been the, the one thing that <clears throat> engagement via technology and not necessarily um, because we have to, but because it is the thing that is going to get our students attention is the utilization of technology. And it's it's not about bringing the content to the technology. It's really the opposite. It's bringing the technology to what we were already going to teach anyway. Um, but no, so across the board, and, and I'm sure that this is this is occurring in, in, in your guys' uh, uh, school districts as well to some degree, but those students who were virtual or, or have been virtual or hybrid or mixer or what have you, um, they are... Uh, they, they might not be attending school, right? Uh, th their attendance might be dropping. They might not be participatory. I know that there was a, um, a news article that came out in South Carolina that said that there were 50,000 students statewide unaccounted for, that they did not know what was happening with them. They didn't know if they had access to Wi-Fi, you know, so on and so forth. So we are really investing everything that we are doing this year in two different kind of components. It is engaging students, because once they're there, we can work wonders with them. And then the second is trying to find data that we can utilize to give us an accurate snapshot of where our students are this year. <clears throat> and again, trying not to talk about the pandemic technology, this, that, and the other, but our students have been by and large virtual up until this week from a year ago, last March, right? So. It's, it's really, that's been our, our central focus no matter what we're, what we're trying to do. Um, so it's offering you know, these bite-sized tech tips to, to teachers, not to inundate teachers with, oh, you have to use this technology, this program, but just offering that there is these different options available out there that you may not be aware of, right? But um, in our weekly meetings that we have with teachers, uh, we really focus, as I mentioned, on data, right? Because of course there are the state mandated formative assessments, uh, MAP, Measures of Academic Progress, is the one that South Carolina uses. Of course, there's the state-mandated pre- and post-tests that you have to offer. There's the end-of-year state test. But, you know, if you have a child who's taking an electronic standardized test at home with a family member, how is that? Is that data valid? Is that data accurate? Can we use that data to make instructional choices? So really what we've been focusing on this year is what can we glean from student work samples? What can we glean from different classwork, homework, different assignments that will give us the most kind of impactful course forward? Um, looking at student strengths in particular for skills, uh, needs and goals, 
and then you know reflecting in small groups well what might be a strategy that we could use in our current setting and environment to meet that need or meet that goal um, so you know just frankly speaking I haven't been able to venture the direction I would have liked to this year as a first-year coach um, but that is just the, the times that we're in um, so I'd say that we've had some great success on that because when you, you go back to August September you know, the thing that's on teachers mind is well I don't know what my students know I don't know what my students can do um, because we didn't have any sort of set of access from before there was no live instruction last spring so really flipping that on its head and saying well no you do know what your students can know understand and do strictly just by seeing what work that they're providing to you so really incrementalizing education and not getting lost in I have my pacing guide I have this I have that I have all these expectations no let's take it a day at a time no one's going to expect anything more from you than what we can get from each of our students and I think that that's also then been kind of the challenge is focusing on that we've really not had an opportunity to leverage a lot of new different types of content a lot of stuff that's being pushed down to us is you know let's try and utilize this learning management system let's transition from Google Classroom to Schoology right or some of these other different things let's use exact path let's use uh, IXL some of these different programs so that's kind of been the challenge is how do you balance that as a coach what is coming at you all good stuff by the way but balancing what's coming at you that you know that eventually we need to get to versus the here and now this is what we need right now this is what our teachers need right now and I don't think anyone has the answer for that necessarily but again just taking it a day at a time and seeing well what can we do today that's going to most impact student growth um, in a teacher's classroom. Do you feel like, because um, I, I agree very much and I, and I appreciate what you're saying as the perspective for teachers and recognizing what teachers currently's concerns are and just saying, hey, like care about kids, look for incremental growth, kind of look through the lens of what can you do to build forward each and every day. Do you feel, uh, maybe as an instructional coach, what attributes of um, the pressure to complete curriculum, especially as someone who's helped to write state level curriculum, right? So you have markers that you're expecting your educators to reach. Um, but what would you say to the marriage um, in a few years from now is an ultimate goal from your end? because? as an educator that by no means has ever completed all of the curricular aspects that I'm required to. Um, but I do feel like there's elements of what we can learn from appreciating instructional opportunities and teachable moments and tapping into kids' curiosities about learning. From your perspective and, and looking two to three years from now when hopefully this pandemic is not a, uh, influence like it is uh, and has been what would you say is that like perfect merge between well it's it's always going to be depth over breadth and and that i solidly am in that camp that uh, you'd mentioned like the teachable moments right if you pass up a teachable moment you're wasting a golden opportunity to pique a student's interest that could lend to a, a future career or a future future endeavor and you know i'll say that we're 
we're blessed in our school district. Our school district has written curriculum maps and curriculum maps and curriculum maps. And there's a ton of pacing guides, day by day. It feels like minute by minute pacing guides exist in some form or fashion now, right? That, you know, if you buy this textbook series, here's your curriculum, go have fun, right? And everything's already pre-printed for you, everything's good to go. And for me, I'm like, well, that's just scratching the surface because whoever's writing all this stuff, even if they're writing it in our own district, they don't know what your kids are interested in, what your kids can do, what your kids will be able to do after they spend a year with you, or let alone your own teaching style, right? For instance, I, I, still, I still taught social studies very much in, in kind of the way that I learned, right? Okay, let's go through some notes and now let's kind of do an activity, right? That concept of like the whole flipped classroom and, and this, that, and the other, I mean, that just boggles my mind how, how teachers are able to make that switch just like that. Now, I, I know that if I, if I work towards that and we had that technology back when I, when I was in the classroom doing that, that we probably could have made that switch, but anywho. <laughs> now, I, I think it's definitely the, the, the depth aspect, right? And what's interesting, too, from my perspective, is I think that this is really a conversation that y'all could probably do a whole season on for, for the, the, this podcast in terms of which direction are we heading as a profession, right? Because I've, sp I've spoken about being on that standard revision kind of committee. And we were very, very intentional in removing required content in favor of required skills. And, you know, not venturing too far out, but how can you test the skill of, let's say, contextualization on a multiple choice standardized test? That's a whole different ball game, right? That's a whole conversation for other folks who make a whole lot more money than I, than I make. But that is what seems to be, at least in our state, the trend is, let's reduce the amount of content that we're telling teachers they have to cover and move more towards, here's the skill, now you can choose the content that you need to teach. And for me personally, um, the state of South Carolina, they only assess one grade level for social studies anymore. Uh, that they did up until about three years ago, they did, I think, two or three grade levels. Now it's just your 11th grade end of course exam for U.S. history. Um, there is no, no testing for social studies at all other than that one test. So for me in the classroom perspective, I really didn't care necessarily. I mean, to just put it quite frankly, like I'm going to teach what, I'm going to teach those teachable moments because, you know, I have, a, I have a pacing guide, but if I don't make it to the end, well, there is no test, right? Um, but my, myself putting my coach hat on, I'm still kind of in that perspective, right? Mainly because not only, and this is a whole, my, my philosophy of education is coming out now, but there's no way to ensure that that test is not only an accurate measure of what a student can do, mind you, right? Because the, the questions are written for one specific type of student, and it's definitely not the student that is coming from an impoverished rural background, right? So the questions in and of themselves are oftentimes biased. So if that's not giving us an accurate measure of, of performance for a student, right, then quite frankly, what is the point of, of assessing those standardized tests at the end of the year? Um, so, so again, just from the coach perspective, it is teach those teachable moments, make that incremental change with every child, 
And our target might not be necessarily proficiency, but is wholeheartedly student growth. If we see that child moving forward, that is all we can ask for. And that really feeds into what you were saying earlier about you know, the check-ins and the formative assessments that you're using and not only those digital tools that are available, but, you know, student work samples and it, and it really boils down to the teachers and the administrators and the coaches knowing those, knowing those kids, knowing what is realistic, knowing where they came from and, and where they're going. So kind of along the same lines of Matt's question, but a little bit of a different approach. And I'm, I'm selfishly asking you as a first year coach myself, um, you know, this year, everybody is using technology, regardless of where they were in fall of 2019. And there are a lot of situations where I have worked with teachers to help them digitize their lesson, and we're finding value in the way we transform that lesson. Other situations, we're finding ways to digitize it and it is not adding value and, it, and it's definitely not as great a product as what they could have done if they didn't have to have half home, half in, social distance, all those different factors that are in play. Um, so I, I think it's really important as we hopefully go back to a very close to, if not you know, completely normal school year next year, to have teachers reflect on, you know, on those situations, what was, what was good, what was not so good and how do they want to kind of adjust their instruction? So, you know, going along those lines, what are questions that you plan to, or you hope to pose to your teachers to have them like really genuinely reflect on that to, to make those decisions as they move back through the curriculum next year? Yeah. And uh, to be quite honest, this is kind of a conundrum that I've been tossing back and back and forth in my head for the last few weeks, because we know this pandemic is coming to an end. We know that instruction is going to take a different shape. I won't say go back to a certain shape because I don't think it will. At least I hope it won't because I think that there's a lot of power in kind of what we've experienced this year. But for, for me, it's like, well, before I even ask the question, it's where do I think, where do I envision us potentially being, right? Um, what are going to be the expectations? Are our are, are teachers maybe going to want to just take a year off from technology, do everything paper pencil for a year, <laughs> and then resume Chromebooks the year after? Or are we up for continuing to do what we're doing this year, but just having all of our students back close to us proximity-wise? So I think I'd probably start there. And like I said, I've been tossing this around in my mind how to move forward. I know we are going to be spending some time kind of triangulating data about, you know, what, what student growth have we seen? What professional learning have you engaged in this year? And what have been the results? And then from there, really reflecting on, well, what's your short-term goal to close out this year? And then what's your long-term goal for next year? Um, but I think that kind of what you're asking about is much more individualized that knowing the specific contents, I think each content could be asked a different question. For instance, I, I know that our math teachers have, um, their utilization of technology hasn't been the same way that our science teachers have been, right? Because there's a lot of just, there's not a lot of interactive maybe resources that they've been able to, to utilize short of some of these, um, these rote mathematics programs. But now I, I, think, I think I would ask them in planning for next year, 
to what degree do you expect to use technology? Um, and in our district, we utilize the same R model, substitution, augmentation, modification, and redefinition. And most all of our teachers have been trained kind of on that model. So to that point, I would ask them, well, categorize your effectiveness this year based on that. Because I think that that gets to kind of your question, Ken, about some of these lessons kind of just hit out of the ballpark and then others, they, they needed some more tinkering. But you know, categorize your, your performance with SAMR this year. Where do you envision being next year? Because then that might give us more some insight that you know, if they were able to modify things this year, make them more engaging, make them more interactive, maybe next year they just want to go to substitution and go back to the types of lessons that they typically taught that they know work that they're in their teacher tool belt, but just substitute some tech elements in there. Or we might have some teachers. Uh, my librarian comes to mind. She's taken this technology stuff and just rolled with it. Um, she might want to go full school redefinition next year and do all these huge, you know, technologically collaborative projects. Um, but again, we have to ask those questions. We have to frame them the right way too, I would say. Um, just because the last thing I think any teacher wants to think about at the moment is, how do you plan to use technology next year? <laughs> I think everyone needs kind of a breather. So kind of the time and space for that too. But uh, like I mentioned, really what we're focusing at is what have we done this year that's worked and what could potentially continue through next year or what definitely has to change. Which I think is going to be, again, that, that kind of evaluation from every teacher, every administration. Um, I think it's interesting because it's got to be a really unique position, both of you guys. So I'm a, a classroom teacher, a fourth grade teacher, um, but both of you are in positions that that evaluation that you hear from teachers will dramatically adjust what your position looks next year. Um, and I think, obviously in good hands, but there's an element of responsibility to say, this: we are in education coming up to an opportunity to choose what the next generation of education looks like, which this again can be a blessing in disguise. It's a huge shakeup to the educational way of things happening. And I know you mentioned like rote memorization in mathematics or these pre-planned programs that tell me how to say every single word and what intonation I should emphasize in a reading program. I think that loses so much of the SEL, the social emotional learning style, the, the artistry of teaching. Um, but I think that it, it will put a lot of that pressure, but also opportunity to give flexibility. It also has been a huge leveling of the playing field. I have teachers that are nearing retirement that are as capable to navigate technology with a few extra prompts as brand new teachers, well-seasoned. It's incredible to witness. Um, that leveling of digital competency, because to be frank, you had to be, has torn down a lot of the restrictions and barriers for so many, not all, but so many teachers. I just think, uh, not again, not to put the pressure on you, but uh, there's some radical changes that can come out of um, this opportunity. And speaking frankly, 
Zach, in your position in a place that obviously you now call home, but again, I, I can't emphasize this enough. Like we, we were, we had the opportunity to talk to a teacher that went through teach for America, which is a classic program that goes through and places highly educated human beings before they're quite ready to go into their field, into classrooms that need good human beings that have drive that don't say hey i've reached my point of where i'm going to be um and i have aspirations forward uh, she just happened to love fall in love with teaching and and connect with it but i think especially in your position with the poverty rate and i'm sure at some point the rotation of my mom lives here in this town my grandparents grew up here. My great-grandparents grew up here. Um, to be in this position to create further opportunities. Um, again, huge responsibility, but a really neat opportunity to say all these restrictions have kind of... They don't bear as heavy of weight. I don't have to worry about my, my staff or... I need to make decisions that are in the best interest of my students. And if my students need this, it's just a, a really, it's going to be a very interesting next few years in education in general. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I would say too, that in, in back to, to Ken's question too, and kind of merging the two together, what is going to be our goal next year, next year and the year after, right? Because we know we're going to have uh, at least in our case, you know, maybe having been virtual for so long, we're going to have very large gaps academically and social-emotionally. And I'm wondering, kind of that, that coverage that you had kind of mentioned, right, that, again, we're focusing on, well, what's in the best interest of the child. I am hoping and praying that that is going to continue next year and definitely in, in the year after as well to give teachers kind of that grace and that flexibility to do what has to be done to make up for some of these losses that we've experienced. And I'm hoping that that, that exists, but um, we we shall see. Absolutely. And and like you, you both just mentioned about what's best for students. And, you know, when asking those questions to teachers about, you know, what did you like, what went well, what didn't go well, really empowering them to evaluate um what benefits they should be looking for. So obviously the benefit of the student learning experience is, is at the top of, of the list and should always be considered. But how did it help you with efficiencies in your classroom? If you're able to use technology tools that allow you to more efficiently facilitate a lesson or facilitate um, the analyzation of data to then impact instruction, that's a huge factor to be considered. Um, how does this fit into the, you know, the well-being of, of the child or collaboration between students? Does technology hinder that? Well, maybe it should be removed or building in kinesthetic movement. There's so many different things to evaluate. The SAMR model is one of those great evaluative tools. But, you know, not just asking the broad question of, you know, how do, was this good or not, but really thinking about, okay, what are the benefits? What are the disadvantages? and kind of making those decisions as they progress back through the year to see where it, where it all, all falls on. So um, kind of on this topic of, of what you're teaching and how you're teaching it, I'd love to jump into our, our lesson lens segment. So Matt and I are gonna ask you questions to share some details about a lesson that you 
have taught yourself, maybe you've helped coach this year, however you're going to take that, we are excited to hear. So question number one is, is this a unit overview, a long-term project, or a single lesson? It is a single lesson. Beautiful. Um, kind of the, the um, parameters, uh, specific grade level, I'm perceiving will probably be eighth grade, um, subject area, most likely social studies, but um, the key one, and I could be wrong there, but uh, the key one is, is this a lesson that happens at a certain time of the year? Well, and I feel like I'm almost on a game show at this point where it's like I'm going to guess these answers. Bing, bing, we need to have some buzzers or something. Um, <laughs> I would say that it is not a certain time of year so much as a certain chronological content. So uh, Revolutionary War time period. Awesome. Uh, so what are the objectives of the lesson? Um, so this particular lesson, uh, the there were a couple different objectives. It was focused on uh, developing interest in Revo Revolutionary War time period. So kind of a vague objective, but one that is definitely necessary for trying to capture the minds of, of eighth grade students. Uh, the second objective was tied into um, having them to understand the plight of soldiers during the American Revolution. And the third was um, being able to identify the challenges that existed for the average uh, continental soldier during the revolution. Wild. That is awesome. Um, speak to us about what exactly a student in your class is doing during this lesson. So I do have to preface this back just a bit. Um, I love doing summer PD programs and they offer a whole bunch to social studies teachers. Uh, this particular lesson came from an individual at Mount Vernon. Uh, as we were studying, way back to, to what Ken had mentioned in a very early question about the concept of leadership, so George Washington as a leader, right? And this lesson intertwines music with team building with content. So the general gist of this lesson is um, you break your class into teams, depending on how large your class is, you can probably get two to three teams. And of those teams, they have to self-assign a general or a commanding officer, self-assign a drummer or two, self-assign some sort of woodwind instrument player, maybe potentially a brass instrument player, uh, two flag carriers, and then soldiers. So the two teams or three teams are basically in effect creating like a revolutionary regiment, right? So you have some PVC pipe possibly that the soldiers are utilizing as, as you know, mock weapons. You have little flag um, flags, you know, the, the 13 star flag, uh, also George Washington's standard battle flag, and they're holding those. And then of course you have, we were able to get some musical instruments from the local high school. so. Uh, snare drums, and then some other instruments and stuff, and then of course you have the leader. And the general gist of this is uh, you give them a very vague kind of prompt, very vague kind of a task about you need to design a musical cadence that gets you from point A to point B. And there's some sort of an obstacle course, right? So maybe I'll put a traffic cone out in the field. And they have to design a cadence and memorize the cadence 
for things like you know marching forward, turn right, turn left, halt, speed up, slow down, so on and so forth. That That's sounds wildly incredible. awesome. I love it. <clears throat> so um, during the lesson, during these activities happening, what is your role to ensure the success of these, we'll say, regiments? Yeah, so the, the regiments tend to um, bicker a bit at the start of the onset, but that is, that is by design. Um, because it's, it's hard to contextualize, right, in the Revolutionary War, you might have an army of 50,000 soldiers, right, and they're marching for miles miles per day, right, with no shoes. And I'm not about to ask my eighth grade students to take off their shoes and walk through a field. That's a no-no, right? They'll play football or basketball with no shoes on, but they won't They won't do that lesson. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> so my role is kind of to be the facilitator, right? Making sure the conversations are engaged in what they're, they're going to be engaged in, um, potentially posing different questions to them. So like, well, why would we necessarily need different musical sounds for these different commands you know what else could be going on boom you know cannons and guns and all this stuff firing as you're trying to march so i kind of serve as the contextualizer so to speak i guess you could say and well why is mr Lowe having us out in the middle of a field what are we trying to learn from this and it's really well asking them those those questions to reflect on because there, there would be a writing prompt at the end that they have to really write their responses down, what they've learned, what they experienced, what they now know. But in the actual process, well, <clears throat> why would we need these instruments, first off? Why would we need to line up in an orderly fashion? Why are the flags at the front? <laughs> and why might there be a flag at the back? Um, why are we so many folks across, right? All these different nuances that aren't anywhere in my social studies standards, but if they grasp that concept and that understanding, then they can be like, wow, now I understand why so many people were killed in action at Gettysburg, right? Or some of these other different battles that we talk about. Uh, you know, so when we contextualize it to Civil War as well, um, when we actually get into some of the different types of, of fighting styles. But, um, you know, with, with the Revolutionary War, and this is a sidebar, there's not much happening in South Carolina short of Francis Marion popping out of swamps with, with muskets and, and shooting people, the swamp fox. So trying to take those big name battles and then scale it down for them to be like, well, this is kind of what it was like in a little bit of both instances. Wild. So, A, I want to go into this lesson by all means. <laughs> um... But really, if you were to grow this lesson any further or critique this lesson at all, are there any adjustments that you would make uh, teaching it? Again, obviously, as a, a coach, it's a little different. Um, but are there any adjustments to either kind of clean up what you've already done or extend it and really, hey, I've always wished that I could have done this out of this lesson, um, what that extension might look like? Yeah, and, and, you know, with Gettysburg on my mind, you know, even though it's not the same kind of context, but um, I remember as a middle school student myself that we had a huge project in ELA class where we made our own uniforms. So we were given fabric. We had to stitch our own uniforms. We made our own weapons, so like a sword, so on, you know, out of a, out of a cardboard styrofoam. Um, and we actually reenacted Pickett's Charge out in the school common area. 
and we all had lines to speak. You know, it, it was like a whole to do. There's an audience there. So I think that long term, that would kind of be, you know, adding more historical context to it. I don't think our my students were ready for that quite yet. I think that as we continue to build our social study programming, that would be the next logical direction. But you know, that's very big scale, right? Doing that to do short scale. I think that I might have you know, opted to do maybe just one team for the classes, um, just for the sake so they could maybe better grasp, well, this is how extensive these marching lines could have been, right? So that might have been an option. Um, you know, maybe providing them actual written questions to do as they're engaging in the process rather than a reflective piece at the end. So again, just trying to continually reinforce their, their discourse that they're having in their teams but getting it down on paper so they reflect on, well, what did that process feel like to go through having to train for those things, having to stand in line, standing <laughs> in line for five or ten minutes, right? Like, as they're trying to work out the cadences, these soldiers, they're just, you know, twirling their guns around, right? So really, again, maybe role, basing that on the role. So at, you as a soldier, how did this experience or how would this experience have translated for them in the historical context. That's that's incredible. This is, uh, I'm very much known, especially in my district and, and those that I've worked with, you know, over the years as a technology guy. But these types of lessons, the kinesthetic situational simulation lessons are by far my favorite experiences as a teacher. And, and Matt and I kind of dive into some lessons in a previous episode um, I'm trying to look up what show it was, but I talk about the battle simulations that I create to help teach my students about what uh, it was show 11, um, what the Revolutionary War was like in terms of the advantages and the disadvantages of both sides. Um, and you talked about Gettysburg being from Pennsylvania. We were able to take our kids. So I'm going to I'm sorry, Zach, I'm going to make you a little bit jealous. Possibly we were able to take our kids on a field trip every year to Gettysburg and we actually had them walk Pickett's Charge. So they learned about Pickett's Charge in class. You know, we had a great tour guide that would set the stage and we stood on the side where the southern where the you know the southerners were and marched all the way to what their target was that they ultimately were not able to reach. Um, but just the like you said, being able to give that context to what they're learning. That and when we would drive at, at one point towards the end, we would drive the entire union line. And as we're driving on this bus for, you know, a couple miles, I would just keep repeating to my class. We're still following the line. Imagine sh soldiers shoulder to shoulder. And when they see how large this was and how many people were actually or would have been there, um, those moments are, are really powerful. So those simulations that you can create. Social studies definitely lends itself to it. I think science does as well. The other subject areas takes a little bit more creativity, but you can do it in other subject areas, um, you know, and it really creates those opportunities for for cross-curricular learning. But it's, um, it's really powerful, powerful when you can create those situations. So our... You know, it's... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just going to say, you know, that whole concept of place-based learning, right? Uh, you know, back on that theme of me learning about South Carolina history, we have a cemetery here in Sumter that has the grave of the uh, soldier who fired the first shot of the Civil War. 
and he's buried here in our town. And it's like, granted, I mean, that that's pretty a, a quick field trip, you know, if you just go, <laughs> you know, look at that grave, but you, know, you extend that process. But just that place-based history, like this is here, this happened here, this guy is right here, you know, and piquing the interest of the students. But anywho. <laughs> well, and I, and I think that that's where, again, the whole part of being a social studies teacher is really part right history and what has gone on but also appreciation for what is around um, appreciation for the resources appreciation to be growing up where you grew up i think that's the the beauty of educators my wife is from new jersey and had to learn the pa history um, to teach that and it's geography and it's um, obviously major cities and imports exports but it's also history native american tribes and and major events. Now, Pennsylvania is rich with many of them, as New Jersey and South Carolina as well. Um, makes it a lot easier than some of the, I guess, more Western states. But there are there are plenty of opportunities, and I think that this is, especially this time of year, is a great time to remember how valuable that play-based instruction or the experiential learning and you may not be able to come up to Gettysburg like Ken was able to, but you sure, with a few clicks, can come pretty close in virtual reality to have the ability to give context. And I think one of the, my favorite activities I've ever witnessed, I didn't actually run this, was I had a, a class in our building recreate scripts for Google um, Experiences. So they would add their own context. They would use what was already pre-built, but they would build their own maps and locations. And, and I, I just, it's one of those things that we as educators do not do activities just to be a cool teacher. We don't do this activity right now. I don't run robots just so they practice coding and can get from point A to point B, it's the collaboration, it's the sense of accomplishment, it's the critical thinking, it's the depth of knowledge. These are the aspects. And yeah, I would love for this to be activity that they remember fourth grade from, right? That That's the ultimate goal. Hey, this was a really neat activity, but there's substance and pride and appreciation and a concept moral theme that they pull from it that they change their perspective it may just be appreciation right like i can imagine can your your fifth graders being like holy smokes this major event in american history i have some maybe a little bit more understanding how impressive that is maybe that visualization or zach right like going to this this soldier's burial site or 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 tomb is one of those things that like that is the context around it because they've probably driven by it a ton of times without any clue of the value it's just it's something especially right now where we're in the middle of state testing what have you and i'm getting excited of what what are we going to do for the last month that doesn't have the restrictions of well, at the end of the day, I need to make sure I hit all this curriculum. Absolutely. And um, I, the one other thing that I wanted to add, uh, you talked about this in your advice, Zach. I made similar mistakes when I was first 
I wouldn't say mistakes, but um, the same realizations in those experiential and simulation-based lessons, I had them reflect at the very end. And then I realized, all right, let me insert strategic questions in the middle because that's when they're reflecting more effectively. And then that end lesson reflection, it was more, they had more of an understanding of what the whole theme and what the whole idea was. So I would absolutely agree about those, you know, pause everybody and just write up one sentence or answer one quick question and kind of just journal those thoughts as they go through the lesson. I, I definitely think is, um, is a beneficial strategy for that. So our last section of the show is called the exit ticket. Same four questions we ask all our guests every week. Question number one is what is the best thing a teacher can do to make a student's school experience better? Make them feel loved. Make them feel that they're welcome to the classroom. Um, and you know, not just necessarily one thing, but something as small as greeting them at the door and asking them how their day is. Making them understand that there is somebody there who will put themselves in harm's way to protect, to nurture, to care for each and every individual child. Mm. Mm -mm -mm. I love that. Um, what's the best advice you've received? And this could be from a colleague, it could be from a supervisor, or honestly, even a student. What's something that, that really sticks out to you? I'd say it's a combination of kind of what Taylor Swift says with let it go, <laughs> but also kind of it is what it is. You know, teachers are, are very heartfelt creatures by nature. Otherwise, we wouldn't be in this line of work. We tend to put all the burden on our shoulders for everything, every injustice that our, our children have experienced or will experience, right? If we read about something that was negative for, for a child in the newspaper after they've left our classroom, you know, that just happened to, to me this week, right? It's really resting heavy on my soul. But it is, if you go into your classroom every single day and do exactly what you think is necessary to nurture and grow and teach that child, it is what it is. What happens, happens, and you have done your very small part in trying to um, push this child forward and push them to successful life, a safe life, and uh, a worthwhile, a worthwhile life. That's excellent. So the school year goes in waves. There are stressful times, as Matt alluded to, state testing, the fall conferences, marking periods, those, those pockets of time where it just seems completely overwhelming for teachers. So what is something that you can say now that a teacher would hear in that moment to be able to, to power up? through that. Um, Stephen and Sean Covey's habit number seven, sharpen the saw. Take some time for yourself each and every day. Uh, do the things that you love. Uh, a lot of our teachers, again, in spite, you know, during this pandemic have been working incessantly. You know, I, I see lesson plans being worked on at 1 a.m. I'm seeing teachers grade work at 6 30 7 30 p.m no take some time for you and, and that kind of relates back to, to the last question again when you're present do the absolute best that you possibly can that is what's expected of you short of that take care of yourself take care of your own mental well-being do the things you love go on a walk go fishing go golfing 
take some time to really just enjoy life. Um, because if you're not enjoying life, if you're not enjoying where you are, you're less effective of a teacher and your students will see that and they'll latch onto that. So if you are in the best position that you possibly can be personally and professionally, your students will soar. I... Matt needs so to So we've hear heard that. different variations <laughs> of that. Yeah. We've heard different variations and, and we hear something similar or related is probably the best way to put that. Uh, I love the sharpening the saw kind of perspective because I think that, especially when Ken asks about powering up, there, there's that element of it is, it is so difficult to, it, it feels guilt inducing to do so, right? Like, I feel like I need to do more. And I imagine, and I give kudos to both of you guys, because your job is to make teachers feel comfortable to do their daily work. And when they are working nonstop, it's so hard to say, hey, I'm, I'm going to check out and take care of myself. So, Zach, honestly, especially as a new position for you, um, it, it's, it's one that, again, is for special people. And, you, and you're both in, in great positions and your districts are lucky to have you. I guess the, the last question we'll ask you is you obviously have plenty to share with us. And, and I've loved our conversation tonight. Are there ways that uh, if people want to continue the conversation with you, continue that, that con the opportunity to learn from you, uh, they can keep in contact with you or ask questions um, either passively or uh, actively? Yeah, um, absolutely. I'm always open um, to conversing with educators from across state, country. Uh, we are all in this together. And to your point, Matt, the work never ends. But the more that we can collaborate and engage with one another, the easier that process is. But I am on Twitter. Uh, if you give me a moment, it's been a while since I've <laughs> gone to my Twitter. I can never remember if I have a zero at the end of my at the end of my name. Um, no, I'm at ZDLOW, uh, so it's a Z D L O W E on Twitter. That's my Twitter handle. I'm also on Facebook, uh, Zach Low, uh, LinkedIn. Not Instagram. I, I never really understood Instagram to, to that degree. I also have a website, ZachariahLow.Weebly.com, that has my contact information on there as well. Thank you, Zach. We will link to your handles and your website in our show notes page, which can be found at PowerEDUUp.com slash show17. Uh, so this this has been a great conversation. I've I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Your school district is clearly very fortunate to have you, very blessed to have you as a part of their community, stealing you from Ohio. They they missed the boat when they only offered you those subbing positions. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah. seriously, very lucky. Your kids obviously had a blast when they had you as a classroom teacher, and now you're able to impact so many more students and so many more teachers in your new position. So um, thank you, everyone, for always engaging in our podcast, whether it be on YouTube or your podcast app of choice. If you haven't already, please subscribe, uh, like us, share it out, leave us a rating and review, do as much as you can to help other educators uh, find this show and find our, find our platform and, and start engaging in our forums. Because just as Zach said, um, you know, we want to create a space where we can collaborate, we can continue those conversations, and, and we can help each other learn 
learn and grow in in a field that requires it so often. So that's it for this show. Thanks again. And Matt, why don't you take us on out of here? All right. So as we power down this episode, Zach, thank you so much for powering us up. I know we're going to leave and uh, really attack this next week. Uh, Everyone be good, be healthy and happy, and we'll talk to you next time.